This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today's episode of Something to Wrestle With is brought to you by Grilling JR Live. And Grilling JR Live is where you can see Jim Ross tonight in Jacksonville, Florida. And you can hear him like you've never heard him before. For more than 20 years, nearly every time you've heard Jim Ross talk about his time in the WWE, he was under contract and now he's uncensored. He's live. He's uncut. He might have a mule or two. You don't want to miss the stories he can't tell on the podcast and tickets are on sale now, right now for tonight's show in Jacksonville, Florida at grillingjrlive.com. The show starts at 10 o'clock. So you've got plenty of time to make it. And of course, on Sunday, right before WWE presents Extreme Rules, JR and I are going to be at Dave and Buster's right there in Philadelphia. Jim Ross, like you've never heard him before, in one of the most historic wrestling towns ever. Pick up your tickets right now. It's jimandconrad.com. That's tonight in Jacksonville, Florida, Friday, July 12th. Tickets are just 30 something bucks at grillingjrlive.com. And this Sunday, July 14th, right before Extreme Rules at Dave and Buster's in Philadelphia. You don't want to miss it. It's jimandconrad.com. Without further ado, something to wrestle. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Brett's Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She booted. What a rip. No, yeah, but there's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck you, Bruce. I love you. Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Conrad. Bruce. I don't know if you should should just take over the Shaka Khan at the end of the show or not. It was it was there. It felt good. It did feel good. And uh last week's episode felt good. We did something a little different. We went back in time. And, uh, let you watch one of the biggest Monday nitros ever and sort of give your two cents. I got really good feedback from that. People thought it was, uh, 
as you like to say, a fresh paint of coat for our show. That's what we do. We we put coats of fresh. Well, we put paints of fresh coats on. Yeah, something like that. Well, something gonna- like that. It was different, and you know, I have to. And look, everybody. I know people don't believe it. Hey, you know, believe what you want to believe. But when you're in the middle of as much work and as much programming as we had to produce at the time, you don't have time to look at everything else. And you sure as hell don't have time to sit down and watch an entire show. If there was something to look at, we would look at it. And we would look at it in bits and pieces. That was my first, it sure as hell was my first three-hour Nitro that I'd ever seen in my life. Um, and going back and looking at it, uh, the talent can't take anything away from them because I thought all the talent was tremendous in it. Did a great job. It was our competitor and it was, um, wasn't a bad show. Can't argue with that, man. I thought it was pretty damn good show. I had fun with it. hope everybody else did, but what we're going to do today is sort of back on track with what we usually do. We're going to go review a show from 20 years ago. Fully loaded 1999. It went down on July 25th at the Marine Midland Arena right there in Buffalo. It is, in fact, a sellout. 16,605 fans on hand. 15,194 of those paid an incredible gate. 547,000 plus another 102 grand in merch. Man, you guys are rolling like a wheel here in uh, the summer of 99, are you not? Yes, we are. And, 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 Business is great, man. It's uh, it's a good time to be in the business, but I, I also have to. God, dog it. I'm sorry. I don't. I'm gonna try not to go off on tangents here, Conrad. I'm I'm trying. However, I got to share another story with you. Okay. I, sh- I shared the first one off air before we got on here. As I was reading the notes, and I'm I'm I've I've got a lot to do right now. Okay, I've got a lot of shit on my plate. I got a lot of things going on. And I read through this thing, you know, fully loaded, and I, I see Buffalo. And in my head, I read Buffalo, Texas. What? Now, do you know where Buffalo, Texas is? I'll be honest. I didn't even know that was a thing. That is a thing. And Buffalo, Texas is exactly right in the middle between Houston and Dallas, Texas. And there was a time in the mid-90s when we were flying in to go and do a live party with uh, surrounded around Shawn Michaels in San Antonio. It was my to- myself and Tony Starson who was in marketing and, and uh, her and I were flying down to go do that. We were flying down on a Sunday night. We got iced in Dallas. We could not get out of Dallas. And while we stayed overnight in the Dallas airport, because it kept saying, you know, the flight's going to go in two hours. It's going to go in three hours. Slept on the floor at about 4.30 in the morning. I said, fuck it. And I rented myself a four-wheel drive car, uh, Bronco. And I said, let's go. We're driving it. So we get in the car about, finally get in the car about 6, 6.30. And we're driving down I-45. And did you know that four-wheel drive doesn't help you worth a shit on black ice? It's a pro tip out there, kids. Four-wheel drive doesn't help you on ice. And we hit a patch of black ice, and we flipped this Bronco several times on the side of the road. And she actually got thrown out of the vehicle on, like, the first or second flip. 
And so when we landed upside down, I'm like, got my hand over on the right hand side and all of the, the whole right hand side of the car is crushed in and I'm going, Tony, Tony. And she's yelling, I can hear her. I can hear her saying, I'm okay. I'm okay. She got thrown on the first flip. She got a cut on her finger. I came out looking like Ric Flair and Randy Orton had just <laughs> had a bloodbath with all these superficial cuts all over my head. And they, the roads were so bad that the wrecker that happened to be about three cars behind us, he saw the whole thing. He said, he goes, look, I'll take your car. I'm going to try and get an ambulance here, but I don't know if I can. They finally got an ambulance there, but the furthest that the ambulance could take us was Buffalo, Texas. And I spent three days at the Buffalo motel where there was no food. There was no, they had a, they had a, a gas station across the street that had those pre-made sandwiches mm -hmm. and Doritos. And that's what we lived on, uh, for three days until my, my good dear close personal friend, buddy Sullivan came and picked us up and saved our ass. But I'm looking at this going Buffalo. What the fuck? And that's the only thought that went through my head. And I just thought I'd share it with you. So that was just fucking meaningless, but, uh, it was a, day in my life actually was three days of my life of just pure hell uh i didn't hear the alarm but uh, now seems like an appropriate time bruce take your pills got it uh, this is the second of three pay-per-view events with the name fully loaded that the wbf would do there'd be one more uh, in 2000 and then in 2001 the invasion pay-per-view would happen so we never go back to the name fully loaded uh, what Sometimes these events, you know, sort of become staples and you, you see them every year. And then sometimes there's a pivot. Why was this one, one that, you know, eventually faded away? I just think that Vince didn't like the name. Uh, it didn't really say anything fully loaded. What's that? And sometimes things just get old and you, you would name them for a reason at the, at the time it sounds good. So the next year you do it again, the next year you do it again, but the meaning kind of gets lost in the midst and you go, eh, this, this just doesn't fit anymore. Let's talk about, um, you know, where we are in, in the wrestling business for the WWF, the attitude era, obviously in full swing business is white hot. We're coming off the King of the ring pay-per-view, which we just recently covered in our archives. Steve Austin has lost his CEO title to Vince and Shane McMahon in a ladder match. The next night on raw though, Austin is going to pin the undertaker to win the world title for the third time. And that raw has the second highest rating ever in the Monday night war with a 6.82 and an 11.2 share compare that to nitro, which only did a 3.59 and a 6.0 share. The actual match between the undertaker and Austin got a 9.5 rating and a 17.1 share making it the most watched match in cable television history. And, uh, we've just recently talked about, you know, that the, uh, honor for being the most watched match in cable history was Hogan Goldberg, but that was 98. This is 99. Woo. Things have changed. Yes, they certainly have a 9.5 rating. I mean, that did you ever imagine you would even see that? I mean, that, that felt like. You know, uh, um, an impossible number to achieve, but it happens here on the way to fully loaded right after King of the Ring. 
Well, I think that, again, shit, you want to go back to the old, old, old primetime numbers. Some of those numbers were crazy incredible, too. But it was a much smaller universe that you had to choose from. And some of those numbers were incredible when you looked at them. But it was, yeah, it it kept getting... It kept getting bigger and there was momentum and there were people that were talking about everything that we were doing. And it was just that hot time in the business that there was so much going on and so much interest inside, outside the business that we were the buzz. We, we, we were the buzz just period in entertainment in a lot of respects. Do you think it'll ever get back there? I think so. I, you know, there, whether, you know, you talk about television ratings, I don't think anybody's ever going to get to the heyday of television ratings. I think that the, as far as viewership and audience and what have you that, yeah, I think that the audience will be there. The, the way that we consume everything today has changed. So shit has changed so much in five years, much less 20 years. 10 years that you who's to say, but I think that the audience, uh, will be bigger than it's ever been and probably be a size that no one would have ever imagined globally. Okay. I'm glad you qualified it with globally because I I tend to agree with that, that, you know, there's a a lot of, of growth potential globally. Um, let's keep it moving here and talk about 1999. I guess we should mention sort of where we are year over year. It's always fun to take a look at this and, you know, this time that year ago or whatever. In 1998, your average raw viewership is 4.8 million viewers. And that's like the best year WWE's had in forever. 99 though, your average raw has 7.2 million viewers. And one of the things I like to sort of look at here is the business end of professional wrestling and Meltzer would publish the different demos, you know, men, 18, 24 men, 25, 54 men, 55 plus, but he also does it for women as well. If you were having to sort of describe the WWE's or the WWF at the times target audience, who would that have been? You know, who is the, the prime quote unquote demo for WWF programming in the summer of 99? Oh my God. It, it was males 18 to 34. Really? Okay. I, I think that that's who we were playing to. And I think that's who was watching us. Everyone was watching us. So the audience was, was older and they're still, you know, you're, you're still going to get that 34 to 55 group as well, but, or whatever those demos are, the, the, that 55, 54 age group, they're going to be in that as well. But I think our sweet spot at that time was, man, the, the kids in college up until about the 35-year-olds. That's what I think. I guess we should uh, mention that 99 is also a year where not only does the ratings and, uh, do the ratings and the fans sort of switch the channel, but a lot of the wrestlers do too. Uh, first, we've got the big show who's going to, we know was the giant in WCW. He's going to debut in February at St. Valentine's day massacre. We've covered that one, uh, in the archives, something to wrestle.com and coming up, uh, I guess next month, we're going to talk about the other big jump 
Chris Jericho makes the switch from WCW to the WWF. And we're going to talk about that deal, uh, in great detail next month here on the show. When we, we look at the 20 year anniversary of that, but he signs a three-year deal on June 30th. What did, what was it about Jericho that intrigued McMahon or uh, Russo or just it, everyone who was in the creative piece. Why did they think Jericho at 28 years old? Hey, this is a guy we need to lock up pure talent. And I think that when you were looking at what Chris was doing at WCW, that everything that Chris would do, it, it garnered attention. And he, he had that demo listening to him and watching him had a lot of talent and Jericho's a smart guy. So there was that allure as well. You, you like smart people working for you and Chris was different. So coming in, I think that he was just someone that was appealing. He was new. He was young. He was fresh. Why not? He was a hell of a talent and he was someone that had never been to WWE and we felt that we could do an awful lot with him. Let's, uh, let's pause the Jericho talk. We want to uh, save as much of that as we can for our Jericho episode coming up next month. Uh, but let's do talk about Vince McMahon making the news because he has a 4th of July motorcycle accident in Greenwich. And I think he cracks his tailbone as a result. And their reports are that McMahon was coming around a corner and was hit by a driver who was backing his car out of his driveway, knocked him off the motorcycle. But of course he doesn't miss a day. He's back working uh, at raw the next day and in the office the following day. Uh, this, this has got to be when you hear Vince McMahon was in a wreck, uh, panic, right? Well, I, I was actually on a cruise. I was, <laughs> so I was, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm on a damn cruise out there on the Russell vessel or whatever the hell it was at the time. And word gets back to me. I remember Dave Hebner coming in and saying, Oh my God, Vince was in a motorcycle accident and we were, uh, coming up, we were close. So like, we're, we're about getting ready to, to what do you, what do you do with the ship? You park the ship. What's that thing? When you do with the big boats, you, you bring them in and you dock them. That's what you do. And so we're a couple hours away from docking, but we were close enough to land that I could get a signal on my cell phone and I call him and he picks up first string because all we had heard at that point was Vince was in a motorcycle accident, right? Which is not, does not sound good. Yeah. It doesn't sound good. Especially, you know, Vince had this big motorcycle with a, a an eight cylinder engine on it the boss hog or whatever the hell it was, this giant fucking motorcycle. And he liked to, he liked to ride his motorcycle quickly. So he picks up right away. I said, Hey, how you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I'm glad to hear it. I said, uh, shit, the word going around this damn boat. I'm on. We, we heard you were in a bad motorcycle accident. Oh, God damn it. I'm coming around. He tells me the name of the street and everything. I knew the path. He says, I'm coming around the corner of this goddamn woman backing up and didn't even look. Didn't even look. I went right across the top of her. Like, 
So you like crashed into the car. He goes, yep, damn bike went right into her car. He goes, I went right over the top. So, well, you okay? I'm fine. God damn it. I'm fine. They, they took me away for precautions. I'm fine. What happened is, is he, he, uh, broke his coccyx or cracked his coccyx, that tailbone little gimmick there. And, um, but he got up and walked away. I mean, he was pissed off. They took him away for observation. He's probably more pissed off that his bike was uh, messed up and didn't miss, did not miss a beat. <laughs> just kept, just kept right on going. I'm fine. God damn. Just, just a little bump, but. Like nothing happened. Um, who are you docking with? Who was I docking with? Yeah. You said you were, you know, the word going around the ship when you were docking. Who are you docking with? It's a good question. I'm trying to remember who was on that one. If that was, that might have been because big show had just signed, right? Big show was with us at the time. That's right. Big and he show was there. new. Yeah. So it was big show it was Billy Gunn. Uh, I think we had, uh, that might've been the Hunter and China one, um, Marrow, Sable. We had a pretty good crew on that one. That was fun. Actually, both of them were fun that I was on, but it was, those are the ones I remember off the top of my head. Cause if big show had just started, I remember big show volunteering, really wanting to go on it. Did you want to go on the the next one? <laughs> you know, I've never heard anybody talk about these cruises. I mean, I had a friend of ours said, Jesus Christ, imagine being stuck on a goddamn cruise ship for a fucking week with all these wrestling fans. Was that the attitude that a lot of the guys had like, oh fuck, I don't want to do that because in their head, that's no vacation at all. Not the first one because <laughs> the first one is, all right, man, I get to go on a cruise. I got to bring my family. We're going to have a good time. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. We're going to go all these other places. The, the issue was never the people that were part of our group that were there to see us because it was on a Disney cruise and we were, you know, that we had this group, I don't know, three, 400 people that were, that were there for the WWE portion of it. Those people were great. They respected the, the boys space. They were, is, you know, they were the, the top of the top. So they came to all the events and, and, you know, they got everything that they wanted. They got their pictures. It was everybody else because you're on, you're on this damn boat and your, your choices of entertainment or fucking Mickey and Minnie Mouse or the goddamn chipmunks or whoever the hell else they got there. Not disparaging Disney or Mickey Mouse. I love Mickey actually. Uh did cuss him out. But um you have that or you have, oh my God, the WWE guys are on 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 board. Then the rest of the folks that were on the cruise, those are the ones that didn't really respect any boundaries and, and would come up when the guys were out with their families and, and you're at dinner and they'd come crowd around the table and try and get autographs and pictures and things like that. So, that, you know, on the, when they would take pictures on the cruise and they, 
put the pictures out for everyone to see. And then you go by and you buy the one you want. Right. Well, people were going and buying the pictures of the boys with their families. Oh, God. So the boys are there and they're looking for the picture that they took with their families and they can't find them because other people were buying them. Unbelievable. So that that was we had to work through a lot, you know, to get to the second one to try and and get through some of that stuff. But the again, the the those that were on the cruise for us, they were a blast. They they were great. You know, we had fun when we did all of our events together and everything. But then when it was private time, they left us alone. And it was it was the other folks that were on the cruise <laughs> that would recognize it. And they'd think, oh, my God, let's go and get their autograph, get their picture. Let's go talk to them. And that that was the issue. That was the problem that we learned on the first one. Around the same time, uh, Big Boss Man appears on America's Most Wanted. Uh, there's a guy who, uh, I guess is a shoot criminal and he greatly resembles Ray trailer. Uh, so a lot of calls were coming in for <laughs> the big boss man. And, uh, they were going to George, you, if you ever going down to cop County, George, you better beware. Yeah. So talk to me about this. You, you mean, what you guys agree to. Send him to America's most wanted just to have fun with the idea that there is a, a fellow who looks identical to him. Well, no, it wasn't to have fun. It was just basically to draw attention to it. This guy had been doing whatever he had been doing and people were sending in tips. I know where he is. He's going to be at the mid County <laughs> civic center this Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> so, my god i'd have a stake out there for him because i'm pretty sure he's gonna be wrestling the undertaker it's um fucking the best man and and they were they were getting all these calls and they were being bombarded with i know who that is that's the big boss man <laughs> and, and authorities got in touch with us and obviously you know boss man and his schedule was nowhere near where any of these crimes were being committed. So John Walsh was a friend of the show and thought it would be a good idea to let folks know, Hey folks, thank you for your tips. We greatly appreciate it. However, this is the big boss man and he looks an awful lot like this guy, but it's not this guy. And we really need help finding this guy that's doing all these bad things. And, and it was, um, but yeah, they were getting those kind of, those kind of tips. They came a question. They questioned Ray trailer. Well, yeah, he looked just like the dude. Hey, you put their picture side by side. They looked identical. I don't know why that's funny to me, but it is. It will, no, the funny part was, is people were going, he's going, you know, like giving the, basically giving him his schedule. <laughs> he's wrestling this guy on such a, I tell you what, y'all just let Undertaker take care of that. Sorry, some bitch. Tell him what he's done. They get a lot of those calls from Kentucky. You think? I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think so. There's a press conference happening, um, with the, the governor of Minnesota. Jesse Ventura, he's going to be a participant in the 99 SummerSlam. Uh, happened at the Target Center in Minneapolis. 
And of course, at this press conference, they're going to make it very clear uh, what his role will be. And it's going to be attended by all the top stars. But what I guess I'm most interested in is how the deal comes together for Jesse to come back. <sighs> Let me just give some, some clarity to that. Uh, he left under not so great terms. Um, he was, uh, not Vince McMahon's favorite person eventually winds up suing for royalties because he never participated financially when the home videos were sold and he was doing commentary. He felt like he should have been compensated. And, uh, as a result of that, uh, lawsuit, he, he, he's awarded like 800 and something thousand bucks. And I think a lot of people thought, well, he'll never be back, but just as with almost everyone else, we say that about the company, including yourself, he's back. How does this come to be? I think it was, you know, we did an awful lot. We we were very involved in just politics, I guess is, is the best way to, to say it. You know, we, we had a lot of different people that had come from the world of politics that worked with us. And when Jesse won the governorship, that was a big deal. Sure. And Vince, you know, you know, Vince and Jesse, I don't think that it's that love. It's a love hate relationship. It's, it's a, it's a weird relationship. They, they have respect for one another and they would do anything together in business may not want to go out and hang out with each other and share the same viewpoints. But here's an opportunity that was a, a great opportunity for us, and it was a great opportunity for Jesse as well to further, you know, further get Jesse out there in, in that public eye, uh, like he needed to be in the public eye more. But it was great for us to have the city governor I mean, think about that. The, the sitting governor, the state of Minnesota to actually, you know, come and be a referee at your event and be a part of your event. It was a huge coup and something that I think in the beginning was almost said in jest, right? Hey, wouldn't it be cool to have Jesse Ventura? The answer is no till you ask. And we asked and got it worked out and Jesse was down with it. So, um, timings, everything. And that was some pretty good timing to get, get everybody, pull everybody together and make it happen. And if there's one thing we know based on everything that's happened this year is never say never. Yeah. Never, ever say never, man. You never, ever know. All right. We need to take a time out right now to tell everybody about save with Bruce.com. You know, we haven't talked about that in a little while, but I did want to give everybody a little bit of a heads up. All of a sudden interest rates are creeping down and I don't know how long this is going to last, but this is about as good of an opportunity as we're going to see for you to refinance, to save your family, a whole boatload of cash. And I'm talking to you, if you're in a 30 year loan, if you've got a second mortgage, if you've got credit card debt, it's not a matter of if I can save you money. It's a matter of how much find out right now for free at savewithbruce.com. Now, when you go to savewithbruce.com, you're not dealing with a third party. You're dealing with me, Conrad Thompson, and my great team at First Family Mortgage. You're going to talk to Francis. You're going to talk to Derek. You're going to talk to Steve. We're going to take great care of you, and we're going to find out how to save your family some money. 
we routinely help something to wrestle listeners say four five six seven even 800 bucks a month and it's free to find out how much money you can save right now you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket so why wouldn't you check this out i'm telling you if you're in a 30-year loan you can pay your house off faster and probably do it with cheaper monthly payments that could really add up We've helped a lot of our listeners save more than $100,000 worth of unnecessary interest. But maybe best of all, if you've got credit card debt, there's never been a better time to do this than right now. You see, the interest rate on your credit cards, not only is it higher than what I can get you, it's also not tax deductible, whereas the mortgage interest you pay is tax deductible. So if there was a smarter, cheaper, faster way to get out of debt, why wouldn't you? And don't get stuck making your minimum payments. Get rid of your credit card debt right now just like that at savewithbruce.com and even if you've checked before it's worth another look right now we're licensed in more than 40 states check us out right now savewithbruce.com you'll be glad you did nmls number 65084 equal housing lender well he's not the only person who's uh maybe eyeing politics jerry lawler is going to officially announce on july the 6th that he's going to be running for the mayor of memphis and uh Obviously there are some people who, uh, aren't really advising him that that's a great idea. What did Vince think? Like of- everybody. <laughs> All right. Why do you say that? And what was Vince's reaction when it's first mentioned to him? Hey, what about King running for mayor? God damn Jerry, you know, your whole life's out there when you run for politics. Um, I just, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, there, there has been rumor innuendo and a lot of things that have followed Jerry around his entire career that true or not, you, you have to combat it and you have to address it. And I think Jerry felt that because he was King of Memphis, nobody's going to bring up anything negative on me. And I, and I think that he really believed that. Um, and I've, there were folks that just thought, well, you're the king of Memphis. You can win. Right. My God, you're on television every, every single Saturday, which had he run for mayor, all of a sudden he wouldn't have been able to do that either because of equal time and all that other bullshit. But I just didn't think it was a good idea for Jerry. Plus it's, it's why, you know, I thought about running for mayor of league city for about two nights one time <laughs> not a good idea not a good idea yeah i just uh just didn't feel like having everything i've ever done in my life brought back into a public eye for everyone else that has never met me to scrutinize it so uh i don't think there were a lot of people that were encouraging jerry to run, but I think Jerry felt that I think Jerry thought he could win. I think there were some polls that uh, were done by uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated that said he could win. Oh God! Hey, let me so, ask. <laughs> thank you for listen. That's a deep cut. Some of you will get that. Uh, is is Lawler sort of motivated to take a stab at this because he sees that Ventura was able to pull it off? I mean, it does feel like sort of the wrestler mentality of. Well, goddamn, I'm more over in Memphis than he is in Minnesota. It wouldn't surprise me a bit. And I know that they talked about it. You know, Jerry, Jerry did talk to Jesse about it. And I believe 
you ain't far off there. Okay. Uh, his campaign really focuses on making the streets safer for residents, beautifying the city and improving the quality of education. He's vowing to attract businesses to Memphis and improve the flow of traffic, create some more parks and decrease property values. He winds up with 11.7% of the ballots, uh, but he, I mean, he beat 12 of the, th- the 15 candidates. So, and it could have been worse, I guess. Uh, how disappointed was he when he lost? Did he know, you know, on election night, I'm not going to win this, but Hey, it was good PR. I think that Jerry probably was relieved that he didn't win it because it's like, wait a minute, you have to go into city hall and, and work. Uh, um, Jerry's had a charmed life, man. Jerry is, has been the king of Memphis in wrestling. And that's all he's really ever done. And has had a dream life. And all of a sudden for him to have to go in and work, he was probably relieved not to have to go and do that. Let's uh, keep it moving here. This is interesting. Meltzer would report in another political situation that ended in a surprising result. The Oregon house of representatives voted down the Senate bill 238 on both July 6th and 7th, which appears to mean that the WWF and WCW will continue their policy of not coming to the state. The bill, whose main task was to give the police department enforcement power over commission regulations, had a provision tacked onto it, which would eliminate drug testing for national touring pro wrestling groups. It was the Oregon commission drug testing policy, testing for illegal recreational drugs, such as cocaine, as well as for HIV. That is the prime reason both the WWF and WCW have avoided running shows in the state. I got to admit. This is something that flew under the radar for a lot of wrestling fans, but has become more of a talking point in the last several weeks. Is this the reason you guys never ran Oregon? There was this weird drug testing situation. No, we did run Oregon an awful lot. And what happened is, is that Oregon required a separate test. There were athletic commissions across the country that required drug tests or whatever, blood tests and different things. And they were, fairly universal. They all had their different things. Oregon and those guys wanted a separate test. That's what, that's my memory. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that was the one stickler that is like, we're doing all these tests. All these tests cover everything that you're looking for. Um, and they wanted another one. And it was like, okay, th- this is just getting to be ridiculous. But there were a lot of people that just didn't, didn't want to deal with it. And it's not like Oregon was a hotbed and a real easy place to get to. So it's like until they change their ways and are going to be a little more lenient on how we deliver these tests, then we'll just skip Oregon. You know, we, we skipped Kentucky for many, many years because of the uh, archaic athletic commission and some of the archaic rules that they still maintained until very recently. And it was actually nice to go back in and, and run the state of Kentucky. So it's just sometimes it's those little stickler things that when you look at the overall scope of it, is running Oregon going to kill us? It was one market, Portland. Okay, we can skip Portland. Right. Uh, let's talk about, you know, the right or wrong uh, the media specifically, here's an example. 
the Philadelphia daily news on July 6th that a cover story called X rated wrestling. And, uh, it's talking about the WWF coming to town for a house show just three days later. And what they're trying to do is one of the things in here, you know, besides saying, oh, you need to be careful what your kids watch and things like that. But they're trying to say that the death of this three-year-old in Dallas, uh, is because his older brother was emulating Steve Austin and the undertaker. And it's as a result, you shouldn't let your kids watch wrestling because they're going to simulate it and accidentally kill each other. And I've always felt like it was a little unfair when the WWF specifically would be blamed for a, a child's death. And they would say, oh, it's because of wrestling or this or that. What's Vince's response when, when stories like this come out in a mainstream paper? Well, it is unfair because rarely is the question ever asked, where were the parents? Rarely is the question ever asked, you know, what, what really happened? And there, there's no, you know, what else is the child watching? How, how do you narrow it down? To well, it must be us. It must be that bad wrestling that these children are watching. Are, are they? Do they watch any other television where people are killing people on TV? Are they doing anything else? Where's the parental guidance to help them understand what it is that they may be watching? And how does a three-year-old understand that? It, it's extremely unfair and it's shoddy journalism, in my opinion. When someone goes back and they just hang their hat on, on that. So it's, you just get a little, you get a little pissed off because you get painted with a big wide brush that you seldom ever have time to make any comment until after, after the fact, and usually long after the fact. I guess we should correct something you said earlier. You said, Hey, I think Sable was on that cruise. This is actually in the middle of the lawsuit. So she's not on that cruise in 99, but she is on the verge of a settlement. Uh, we've covered all of that with uh, our Sable episode in the archives. It's something to wrestle.com. Let's talk about TSN and their off the record show. Uh, this is something that I've always been fascinated with that you guys had such a great relationship with Landsberg and will continue to not only send talent, but the McMahon's. Um, they filmed three shows on July 22nd of 1999, one with Vince McMahon, the second with Vince and Linda, and the third with Shane and Stephanie. And they're going to air these on July 27th, July 28th and August 3rd. And they're going to air at 6 PM Eastern. So it's a really good time spot too. Uh, they plan to talk about, you know, the Owen Hart death, the Owen Hart raw show, the decision not to stop the pay-per-view writing the letter to the Calgary sun about Martha Hart, why no one went to Brian Pillman's funeral, all the hot topics. This feels like something Vince would avoid, but he tackled it with Landsberg multiple times. What was the, what was the, the weird relationship with Vince McMahon and, and TSN's off the record? Well, we always had a pretty good relationship with, uh, TSN in particular and with, with Landsberg, we cooperated with him and would give him talent from time to time. And Vince really didn't avoid the press. Vince isn't one that really likes to believe it or not, get out there and give a lot of those interviews, but sometimes he feels the need that he has to, and that he will jump out and do that shit. So it's, 
in this regard, it was an opportunity. They wanted to come in to the studio and they wanted to come in, do the interviews in Stanford and do the whole family. So he opened himself up to it and invited him in and felt, okay, you want to do this, then let's go do it. And that's all there really was to it. It wasn't anything more than um, we had a relationship with them. And it was a good relationship for many years, actually. Let's talk about uh, some of the, the topics here. Um, Landsberg has always been pro WWF, of course, but he's still, you know, asking the tough questions. And when he talks about um, the over the edge show, that's got to be something that Vince doesn't really want to talk about. Are, are, are you guys given like a list of the topics or the questions in advance, or is Vince just, you know, letting him shoot from the hip? Vince is fine shooting from the hip. I don't remember anybody getting anything in advance at all. And, and I wasn't that involved with it. I believe I was there for part of the interview, but I don't think I was there for the whole thing. And, you know, Vince is like, is pretty good about what you got. Let's go. <laughs> he doesn't need to, doesn't need to have a list of questions and everything beforehand. I'm sure a lot of times we want to know what's the subject matter, where are we going, what do you want? And so that we're prepared, but for the most part, doesn't need to have verbatim. What are your questions? I mean, they get in details like where Vince says that he sent a blank check to the funeral home for Owen's death. And, you know, Martha wanted a very lavish funeral and he was happy to pay for all of it. And when Landsberg says, well, why did no one from the company come to Pillman's funeral? He says, that's an entirely different set of circumstances, which it is. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying that's stuff that you wouldn't normally expect Vince to be talking about. But I mean, not only did he talk about it, he talked about it on TV. Uh, of course they discussed, you know, everything about Ventura and Bret Hart. If you can find it, I know this is not on the network, but it is online. Uh, you can dig around and you can find it. It's a fascinating appearance. And one of the things that stuck out to me is they bring up Hulk Hogan and McMahon says, never say never. And he says that six months ago, he couldn't conceive that he'd be working with Ventura. Uh, but now he is because it's good business. And this is pretty funny. When asked if Eric Bischoff called him for a job, if he'd take him, McMahon said he didn't know what Bischoff could offer, <laughs> uh, but that everything he does is for the betterment of his product and for the fans. This is such a weird thing to go back and look at now. Is it not? Yeah, it, it is. And it just kind of goes to demonstrate just how crazy <laughs> this business can be because, you know, one minute you're, uh, in a war fighting and trying to gouge out the other guy's eyes. And then the next moment you're back to back with them in a foxhole and looking at somebody else. So it's, um, it is a strange business that makes strange bedfellows. Sometimes you guys have an advocate in the UPN president, Dean Valentine. He, uh, has to defend the choice to air SmackDown to the television critics association. Uh, he rattled off, um, a bunch of reasons as to why this should be acceptable programming, including saying it's, it's less violent than any Rocky movie. And, um, you know, he says there's, there's not anything violent or sexist about the WWF, but he does admit there is the occasional blood, but 
there's no guns and nobody ever gets stabbed. And it's interesting to see someone sort of outside of the wrestling bubble defend wrestling and to make the comparison less violent than a Rocky movie. When you know that you've got, you know, a new television partner like this, but you also know that the media is coming guns a blazing. Are there conference calls and whatnot about, Hey, here's how you need to handle this situation. Because at this point, the WWF has developed, whether it's public or not, a set of best practices of how to handle, uh, detractors. And you don't really want to put a television partner in a bad spot. And that's, I mean, that's a bad way to kick off a relationship, right? No, your television partner is obviously aware of what product that their partner's with and the company that they're with. So first of all, they're aware of what they're airing on their networks and how to present it. And they're, you know, anything like that. It's not like, oh my God, we have wrestling on our network. It was broadcast television. They knew exactly what they had and they were proud of it. And went into this with that feeling of, look, we're behind SmackDown hundred percent. And they look at the, the media, especially some of that entertainment column news media that just looks to jump on everything negative. And they're prepared for all of that. They, they prepare themselves and if they need help in preparation. Hell yes. We're there to help prepare them with actual facts and explain the differences between us and everything else that's out there. And the ones that care and Dean Valentine cared, or we wouldn't have been on the network. So, you know, they took as much offense to the bashing as we did. Melzer would report that Nicole Bass, Shannon Hall, gold dust, and Ryan Shamrock were all gone. Uh, Bass was officially given notice. He would write, I believe she had just signed a contract. And was claiming that she could earn 15 to $20,000 per month doing so-called apartment wrestling, which is a fetish thing for guys who want to get overpowered by a woman. She wasn't making anywhere close to that in the WWF. And it didn't look like she would anytime soon. And there was unhappiness over her failure to improve in the ring. There was also the problem that as long as she was around, fans would want to see her wrestle China. And the problem with that match is management felt it would kill the illusion of China. Not to mention the match would be so awful. They figured China would get damaged. Her being in there kind of worked against China's original gimmick, but with the new face, giant implants and makeup, China's gimmick is different anyway. What do you make of that report about Nicole Bass that you guys weren't happy that she wasn't improving and she's saying I can make more, you know, apartment wrestling. Well, I will go on record as saying I was unhappy having to sign Nicole Bass. I didn't want to sign Nicole Bass. Uh, I, I didn't for reasons of the comparison to China, but also from the standpoint of the different things that, uh, and rumor and innuendo, but at the same time was enough of it that there was some smoke to that fire and going through just the initial. Hey, I know you don't want to say it. So I will allegedly her boyfriend or husband or male partner was a drug dealer and he was, uh, back channeling drugs to a lot of the boys. And that rumor got started in ECW where he would have party favors for balls, Mahoney or Axel rotten or whoever was into sort of those hardcore drugs. And maybe it was cause for concern. We don't want any of that type of shit in our locker room. 
Nope, never heard that beforehand. Okay. Yeah, never heard that beforehand. Uh, and as a matter of fact, her husband presented himself as a police officer and said that he was a New York, uh, a New York City police officer. So what's, so, the, so what's the rumor in innuendo? Well, that's, that's, no, the, the rumor that she was difficult to work with, and but but all but the the initial what I was going to say is is my initial contact with her was met with, well, I'm I'm doing all of these other things, and I've got to make X amount of money and so on and so forth, which was just so out of the ballpark that I thought, okay, we're done. And I said, here's the offer, and that's it. Then I got the word back, just get her to TV, do whatever you have to do to get her to TV. Uh, didn't pay anywhere near what she wanted, but it was still, in my opinion, a lot more than we ever should have paid her to get her there because Russo just you know, had to have her, had to have her to, to be Sable's bodyguard or whatever it was that she was coming in to do. And I didn't feel that, uh, Nicole was completely honest in what she was telling us she had done because I did ask about the, okay, is the things that you're doing wrestling men, is, is this pornographic? Is this, uh, something that is out there that's going to come back to hide, uh, that's going to come back to hit us in the teeth. And she assured us, no, that it wasn't. But I said, I need to know what it is so that we, Look, I don't care what you've done. I really don't. But if I need to know everything. And she wasn't forthcoming with everything. And we kept having to find things out. Then, after she was here, then the rumors of her husband started coming forward. Then he, he uh, portrayed himself as a police officer, whether he was or he wasn't. I still, to this day, don't know. Uh, there were so many things that were crazy about the entire situation with her. I, I didn't know. I, I still don't know what the hell she did on the side, but when she finally gave the ultimatum of, she could make so much more money doing this. I said, then why in the hell would you even want to consider staying with us? If you're making, because she, she would say that she was making between five and $10,000 a week, by the way. And I'm like, okay, then good God, you can go do that and you don't have to take one bump. Go do that. Who wouldn't do that? If I, if I'm going to make between five and $10,000 a week, every week, and I don't have to take one single bump and I'm being flown all over the world, first class and being treated like, uh, a queen, go do it. More power to you. You know, I guess I can't pay you that right now. The, uh, the the sort of back pages of the wrestling magazines once upon a time would would try to sell videos of this apartment wrestling. It's always been like the underbelly of professional wrestling. What was uh? What did the boys think of that? What did the office think of that? It, it always felt weird to me that the wrestling magazines would even publish it because, at least in my worldview, wrestling magazines were for kids. And then you get to the back pages and well, that's not for kids. 
you thought wrestling magazines were for kids. You didn't get the, you are you're, you're probably, yeah, you're way too young for the it used to be when you would open up the very first page of the wrestling magazine, the very first inside ad was the blow up doll <laughs> with, with the bar, with the bar across the nipples. I'm serious. And it would have, it would have, it would have, they were all cartoons, right? And it would have the guy sitting there having a drink with a blow-up doll and the guy dancing and then one in a negligee. So, yeah, I never viewed those as kid magazines, ever. But they were, you know, a lot of those guys, think about it. They had a section in the magazine for Apartment House Wrestling. Who do you think was publishing and producing that stuff? No. So, I mean, it was a business. It was a business. And I don't know that they ever got into any pornography. I don't know that there was ever any nudity in it. But it was very scary. You know, the women wrestlers that everyone was used to, you know, they wore one-piece gear, and they all looked like Moolah and Mae Young. So the idea was to have pretty women in bikinis wrestling. That was the allure. But I don't think there was ever any nudity or any, um, certainly wasn't any pornography involved in it. But it was just scantily clad, better looking girls wrestling in an apartment. So it made it, it gave the allure of being something more than it was. Then, then after that, what came is the, the, the ones that will, uh, either wrestle a guy, you know, the guy will pay to, to have him wrestle. And then there would be people that would pay to have him wrestle nude and different things. And that's, that was a whole different industry that some people got into that. I, and I, and funny thing is, I just learned about that whole paying to videotape a, a women's wrestling match that some guy would write out what he wanted to see. I just learned about that a few years ago. It's crazy. It's fucking weird, dude. That's what it is. Yes. It, I mean, it, it, weird. This is bizarro land. Uh, it's also pretty bizarre that we've got, uh, sort of life imitating art, Dustin Rhodes, you know, gold dust. He's been with the company for a long time at this point. Uh, well, I mean, I guess four years, but it feels like a lot longer. I mean, he was such a big part of what you guys were doing for so long and allegedly, um, well, I'll just read it for, directly from the observer. Goldust has been out with a bad back, and there are a number of reasons here. Among them, he and Terry Runnels are about to be divorced, and apparently with her signing a new deal, the company felt she was the more marketable of the two. As a side note, bookers have incredible real-life power. As over the last few years, we've seen four married couples who have booked breakups, the Sullivans, the McMichaels, the Marrows, and the Runnels, and except the Marrows, all four followed with almost identical breakups. And we know the Marrows are next. After McMichael's breakup, people joke that Kevin Sullivan, who booked both WCW angles, was the expert at booking marriages to end, including his own. 
particularly since the angle and his with Benoit wound up with his wife legitimately winding up with Benoit. We were told, and I don't know how serious this was, but it was said to me as him being very serious. And I guess it would have been his way of getting released to go to WCW that he suggested to McMahon that he wanted an operation to have implants in his chest. Yeah. Uh, obviously he'd heard about the top male kickboxer undergoing a sex change and all the pub it's gotten all over the world. McMahon wasn't willing to go that far and Reynolds felt they weren't going to give him a chance to reach his potential. And that led to the exit. What can you tell us about Goldust's run here coming to an end? It was time. I mean, it, it really was time. We had done about as much as we could do with Goldust f- for that period. And Goldust really needed a rest. And Dustin Runnels, uh, the human being, didn't want to rest. He wanted to keep on going and he wanted to continue. And it just was one thing after another. And I don't think that Dustin was in the best place mentally as far as him viewing things rationally and and he was having issues he was having personal issues at home and i think that that consumed his thought process and we were just looking for him to get himself right and sometimes the best thing to do is to go away and learn a new hold and it was just time at that point that okay if there's nothing here maybe it's time to take a little break and when when all the smoke clears that's what it basically boiled down to we mentioned ryan shamrock she's out too um elsewhere right that she wouldn't sign the contract they offered and she's only 20 years old she doesn't want to make a long-term commitment uh so everybody just sort of goes their own separate ways why didn't uh why didn't ryan shamrock stick around she had no desire to be in the business (laughs) so there's that she just had no desire to be in the business at the time. She stayed. The funny thing is she stayed and did shit in the business after that. You know, she went away for maybe a year or two or something, but the next thing you know, she's appearing on WCW and doing these other things. But yeah, she came in to do the Ryan Shamrock gig. And then it was like, well, if you're going to be at ringside, you got to learn how to take a bump. You got to learn how to wrestle. We got to do this, got to do that. She's like, I never wanted any of this. She came in for the payday and a couple of shots that turned into more shots. It kind of turned into a regular gig. And now all of a sudden we're talking about, well, hell let's, uh, let's sign you up full time. And she's going, shit, I don't want to do this. Right. So, So that, that, that's what was funny about that one. Let's get to the fully loaded pay-per-view. Um, Meltzer would say it was probably the best pro wrestling pay-per-view show in three months. So how about that for a little bit of an endorsement on heat? We would see Val Venus pin Joey abs in three minutes and 16 seconds. Uh, we also had Godfather baiting his meat in two minutes and six seconds with the dreaded pimp drop and, uh, triple H does a shocking interview. Uh, at least that's what they've been talking about for a long time. They've been pushing. This is going to be a shocking interview, but this is a famous promo where he's, uh, talking about the 1996 King of the ring and the curtain call. And he's going to blame Jim Ross for management, holding him back. And this is sort of, uh, the breakout promo for the triple H character. Uh, I think most people remember this. He had like a, a backwards leather hat on here. 
what, what do you remember about this, uh, this shocking triple H interview and it sort of becomes the launch pad for this new, as you say, a, a fresh paint of coat for his character. Bro, you gotta be real. Well, no, it, you know, the, the point of it was, was to peel the curtain back a little bit more, kind of like we do here. Right. And to address the elephant in the room a lot of times is to what everybody likes to whisper about. Well, let's go ahead and get it out there. Let's just say it. And that was the idea behind it was for triple H to go out and address it. I don't think that this was even, you know, the breakout to, to some people it may have been, but during this time and even, you know, before it is where triple H and, and those guys, those guys being DX and shit like that had, had that reputation for going off script, doing things a little bit edgier. Sometimes they'd get their ass chewed out for it. Sometimes it would be pure gold and Vince would have to say, okay, that was good shit. But they took the chance. It was guys like Hunter. It was guys like Steve. It was guys like Mick Foley and uh, The Rock who looked at that opportunity of being on live television to say, all right, let's try this. Let's go do this. Uh, and, and do some things within reason that either got over great or they got the, uh, hell of an ass chewing as soon as they got to the back. So this, this was written for him and this was laid out for him as far as the subject matter. He knew what he was going to do. But it was something to, yes, take him to the next level and, and make you think, ooh, this is real. You know, this is a pipe bomb for the pipe bomb. To be clear, this is the promo where he first refers to himself as the game. Um, and I know there's no real comparison to the Austin 316 promo, but if Triple H had one, I think most people would argue that this is sort of that. You know, it's a critical point in his career. Uh, at this time on heat undertaker comes into the building and, uh, Paul bears here in stripes looking as only he can look, um, Christian is going to pin viscera in two minutes and 43 seconds. Meltzer would say this was really sad. Uh, Gangrel is going to blow the red mist and viscera's eyes. Christian schoolboys him and they're teasing the idea that Christian is going to wind back up with Gangrel Now that they're pushing edge as a singles wrestler. And during an interview, uh, undertaker is going to attack Austin. Who's busted open. Uh, so Austin is damaged goods. Now, as we head into the pay-per-view, uh, we get started here with edge and Jeff Jarrett and, uh, Jeff is trying to, uh, end edges intercontinental championship reign that started the day before. That's right. Edge won the title as a surprise the night before in Toronto, which is kind of fun behind the scenes. Ken Shamrock's flight arrived late. So they had edge, uh, who had already worked the opener already put in as a substitute and decided to have him beat Jeff Jarrett since he's from, uh, Ontario near Toronto there. And that built him up for the local market. And supposedly it was a pretty good match. And yeah, edge is the one day intercontinental champion here. Jeff Jarrett wins it back. Three stars is what Meltzer gave it. It's kind of fun that you guys, uh, you know, did a title switch on a house show. Yeah. And, and again, sometimes shit can happen. So why the hell not? And you can make anything happen on any given night. 
and the idea was kind of bantied back and forth. What do we do? We'll make them happy. You know, <laughs> make them happy in Toronto with Edge being a hometown boy. Ah, fuck, put the title on him. We'll take it off of him tomorrow. But it also gave you that the, the same thing. Anything can happen at any time and let people know if you go to a house show that you could see a title change and you can't see shit happen. Now more than ever with social media and all the cameras they've got everywhere. Well, and I mean, that's, I know we're going to talk about current stuff, but that's the genius behind the 24 seven belt uh, on the July 19th raw, uh, Jeff Jarrett beat Christian to retain the intercontinental title. And then after that match, uh, edge would attack Jeff. And as a result, uh, Jarrett challenged edge for the intercontinental title and fully loaded. So that's sort of the backstory. Let's talk about the next match though. This is kind of a fun one. Uh, Farouk and Bradshaw would regain the tag titles for Matt and Jeff Hardy who teamed with Michael Hayes in a two on three match, nine minutes and 32 seconds. Um, two stars. The finish of course, sees Michael Hayes take the double team power bomb and get pinned, which uh, costed his team, the tag titles. I guess it's a clever way to get the belts off the Hardys. Uh, how thrilled was, uh, was, was Hayes to be back in the ring here. Dave, Dave, Dave. Hi. How about if. Any one of y'all other than me can climb up there and do one in quadruple reverse double song. And when you come down, I'm just going to punch you in the mouth. I'm going to fake the right, but I'm going to throw the left. Um, <laughs> you know, Michael was, first of all, extremely instrumental in the Hardy's development early on as their manager in teaching them how to be a great tag team and how to work you know, is, is a team and, you know, people look at the Hardys and said they were always a team. They always did this. I, I will say that the time that they spent with Michael Hayes was probably the equivalent to a, uh, four year crash course at the finest university anywhere in the world. So Michael helping the Hardys become that unit and become that great tag team invaluable to me. For Michael to be in the ring, I think Michael always felt that, well, fuck, I got another one in me. Shit. I'll go out there. I'll work circles around you motherfuckers. And for uh, Ron Simmons and John Layfield, say, hell yeah, Michael, come on, come get you one. And damn. Um, they were pretty excited to take Michael's head off as well. So he goes <laughs> back. <laughs> Everybody wins. Everybody wins in this. The Hardys don't get beat for the title. Michael gets his head taken off. Michael works match. Hey, we're all happy, man. And when you look at it and it, it worked, it worked. It was, you know, the old guy in there with, with the kids and all this other shit. And, um, for the old timer, for the sentimental in me, I, I loved it for Michael. For sure. Uh, let's keep it moving here. D'Lo is going to take on Midian. Uh, the European title, Meltzer would say, is basically a spoof on titles to begin with. But this, unfortunately, wasn't a spoof on matches. He says D'Lo looks to be in the best shape of his career and came comes out strong, even doing a tope. But from that point on, it's all downhill. Quote, Midian is one of those guys because he's big and kind of ugly that they think can be a good heel, but he just doesn't have anything. The match had no heat after the first minutes until the boring chance started. 
Brown totally missed a tornado DDT and won with a frog splash. So he is your European champion quarter star. What do you think of, uh, the way he's describing D'Lo that this is the best shape of his career and that there's just really nothing there with Midian. Well, D'Lo did look great. And it was during the time D'Lo knew that this was his time in his career where he either had to make hay or get the hell out. And D'Lo was an excellent talent and took that. He took that challenge seriously to the point of getting himself in great shape and busting his ass every opportunity that he had in the ring. Poor old Tex, Midian. Um, you know, Midian is a wonderful human being. He'd give you the shirt off his back. Great, great guy. But the business, as far as being able to get the personality of the guy in the dressing room on screen... That was the issue with Midian. You, you just never got it. Uh, in the back, Midian was entertaining as hell and had the whole locker room in stitches. But that just wouldn't translate to the audience. And he tried to be something that he wasn't. And his work was, unfortunately, average at best. And it and it just wasn't, it wasn't anything that was going to take him to the top. You add on to that. He was everybody's friend, so you know you, everybody was pitching for him all the time, and, and everyone wanted to see him succeed. But it just it just wasn't there. Next up, we've got the hardcore title on the line. Al Snow is going to be defending against Big Boss Man. Uh, I guess you know that uh, these guys had a series of, of silly matches. Uh, Meltzer would say for the most part, this was the same mess they've been having on every pay-per-view boss man pounded on head with his nightstick and say snow was selling every blow. They went backstage and had one of those brawls that goes on way too long. Al pours coffee on boss man and in his good eye or his bad eye. Thank you for that. There was a funny spot where boss man took a first down marker and flipped it to fourth down and punted snow. So that's good stuff. And then snow comes back hitting boss man with a plant. Uh, yeah, a plant boss man tried to run snow down in a golf cart, but the cart won't start. And then they go outside the building and boss man gives snow a bulldog on the pavement as they're trying to cross the street. They nearly get hit by a car and, uh, boss man breaks a bottle over snow's head, handcuffs him to a gate across the street, starts nailing him with the nightstick. And the ref counts the pin, even though he's sitting upright star and a quarter boss man's your new hardcore champion. I like some of the silliness of the hardcore matches. I know you weren't always a fan. This is probably an example of what you're not a fan of. What hitting a mannequin head and Al selling all of it. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, a friend of yours would, would yell, goddamn outlaw mud show bullshit. Motherfucker. Um, yeah. (laughs) What do you say? And I'm a big Al Snow fan. Everybody is, but it just, it was terrible. The, the whole Al Snow, big boss, man. All of it was, it was, I think it went on too long. 
kind of nice little story. But when you get to eating the dog, you lost me. And then you have the kennel from hell match and you turned me off. And then (laughs) it was just, there was just so much shit that it, the shit kept, it was repeating itself. Some of it could be very entertaining and some of it could be good shit. But this wasn't one of them. And I actually remember the, the car coming out and going, what the fuck? Um, they knew we were coming out there, but it, it just, this was a shit show. This was a shit show. It was, it was not good. Um, but it, it, well, I don't know that it was the performer's fault as much as it was the, the booking of the match and, and how many times it had been booked. And there were only so many different ways that you could do that hardcore match with the same two guys. Uh, then you got to eat his dog. I mean, <laughs> you know, then what? Just. Did you hear what yeah. you just said? Yeah, then I you, sure did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brutal. All right, let's get to the next match. Uh, it's Big Show and Kane. Uh, they're going to go eight minutes and 13 seconds. Big show gets the pin. Uh, Meltzer says Bob Holly was a riot as a special ref doing the Barney Fife to, uh, shows Andy Griffith routine, uh, show would press Kane, throw him onto the floor, which is a crazy bump for a guy that big to take. And Kane's dropped a bunch of weight, but still, uh, wow. Um, Jr says they're uh, king of the ring match was uglier than a bowling shoe and promises that this one is going to be better. Uh, but Meltzer says it's barely better. It gives it a negative one star. We've got lots of, uh, interesting shenanigans here with Bob Holly clipping Kane. And then X-Pac is going to do a run in and kick Holly, but undertaker comes out and choke slams X-Pac and then taker and show join forces to lay out Kane. The fans are chanting for Austin, but they're doing, uh, this angle backstage and as taker comes through the curtain, Austin jumps him and now he's bleeding. So both sides are now damaged goods. As I go to the main event, lots of stuff going on here. What'd you think? Well, again, it was, it was put together for lots of shit to go on and for there to be a lot of Gaga surrounding the whole damn thing. So to, to that order, it succeeded and it got, all of the bullshit in one match to try and get us into later on in the night where we've got to go with Austin and Taker. So it, it, it was a lot of shit for a lot of shit reasons. Was it pretty? No, it wasn't, but it told the story and it got the story out there. And, and big show, I think during this time was God still trying to find his way and still trying to, to be big show wanted to be a worker. And he's a giant, you know, this is this big, impressive son of a bitch. that doesn't have to do shit, but stand there. But he's also a hell of an athlete that wants to demonstrate to you how great of an athlete he is. And he doesn't have to do that all the time. And that sometimes hampered him in his matches, but the match was an ends to a means or means to an end. And they got that. That's what it was there for. So it was never meant to be this great match. It was meant to continue a story. 
Speaking of things that weren't meant to be a great match, Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman are uh, going to wrestle in a circle of cars in a parking lot for four minutes and 19 seconds. They're mostly going to be breaking car windows and windshields. And the undercard wrestlers are going to sit on the hoods of the cars watching with the car lights counting for the lighting. Most would say as a concept, it didn't work because it was poorly lit and it looked more like a bad movie than a real fight because the shot showed the cameraman right next to the participants, thus removing the dangerous aspect of the drama. The guys worked hard, took some bumps on the cars, although nothing compared to the insanity the WCW guys did for their junkyard match. The smart thing is it's kept short so it doesn't drag like the Al Snow match did. Blackman's going to bring in a chain, but Shamrock gets it and punches him out with it and uh, starts to choke him with the chain. One star. So another show or another match on the show where most of the action happens outside the arena. Uh, They're fighting in a circle of cars, Bruce. Who booked this shit? Bro. Bro. It's a parking lot match. Um. I actually thought that, that it wasn't bad. And again, it's telling a story of those guys. And like you say, it's another, it's another match where shit's happening outside of the arena. I'm not a big fan of that. And I didn't think that that was good, but if you just want to look at the match itself and the fight itself, these two guys beat the living shit out of each other. Uh, their styles are so damn similar in a lot of respects and both of them, they're best friends. So they're trying to outdo one another and they're trying to have the very best match that they can. You're confined to a circle with a bunch of cars and a bunch of guys sitting around and shit. The idea of the match, I think is a very good idea. The execution was good, but on television and the totality of the pay-per-view and all the other bullshit going on in the night didn't really fit, but I, I think that the action and all the shit that they did, I thought they did a hell of a job. We'll let the fans decide on that one. That's an interesting idea. I guess next up road dog and X-Pac are going to take on China and Mr. Ass and they're fighting for the rights to the DX name. Uh, Meltzer would say that China worked a lot and while she's fine because the guys make her look decent, she's only decent at best when working with her friends. The match was slow early and had surprisingly little heat until the end. It picked up toward the end, but it was just an ordinary match ending when road dog pinned Mr. Ass with the pump handle slam two and a quarter stars. It does feel like triple H is almost trying to distance himself from DX. And now everybody else who was in the group is left to just sort of, Hey, y'all take the name and see what you can do with this now. What'd you think of this match? Uh, I agree with Meltzer. It doesn't seem like it's nearly as heated as it could have been. Maybe the fans don't see DX as a top act anymore. Did it just burn out too soon or without, is it more of a case of without Sean or Hunter? It's just not the same. You know, I, th- I think it was rushed and I, it, you said it exactly. It didn't mean anything because it was, it was just kind of there. And I don't know that the participants in the buildup to it was, was enough to really care about, well, I'm DX. No, I'm DX. There wasn't that. You really hadn't had that battle yet to all of a sudden, okay, the winner of this match gets the right to the DX name. Okay. 
if the performers didn't care, why should the audience care? Right. And that was the feeling going into this. There was not enough buildup to it to really make it mean something to the performers and to the audience. And, and again, yes, it was triple H was moving on from the group and triple H was doing other things. I mean, he's, he's involved in shit with the rock now and they're moving on into a singles deal where splitting everybody off and trying to see who's going to be our singles guys, who's going to be the tag team, where's everybody going to end up. And in the middle of it, well, who gets the DX name? Nobody cared. Unfortunately, nobody cared in as much equity that had been placed in DX at that time. It should have been a much bigger deal. And all, everybody in that match, they're all DX, you know, and then you got to remember Sean and Hunter, you know, starting it and they're not even involved. Right. So it just felt, give me Sean Michaels as the referee, something, you know, something to care in here. Um, the match was okay, but it was, it was kind of like, okay. Well, people, if they had old fashioned programs, people would have been looking at their programs at the end of it. Going, okay. What's next? I'm moving on. Next up. Hunter Hearst Helmsley is going to pin the rock to earn a title shot in a strap match. Uh, the rock is going to do another incredible interview before the match. Meltzer would say it's a good match. And Helmsley was noticeably more aggressive than usual, trying to get himself over as a real world title contender. He says it was nothing special, that the crowd is far more into rock as a star than triple H and the last two, uh, up until the last two minutes, this didn't have any sort of special level of heat, except when the rock would play to the crowd for a reaction and rock took a camera from a fan, took a shot of uh, triple H and then gave him the camera back. They're brawling through the crowd. Rock's going to take some guardrail shots. China's going to come down. And then rock, uh, hits the rock bottom, but China distracts the referee, Mike Kyoto. Of course, this allows triple H to come back with a low blow. And, um, eventually he starts choking the rock with the strap big pop. When uh, Mr. Ass comes down and hits the rock with a club and rock kicks out, um, rock delivers a low blow of his own and a people's elbow and Billy Gunn pulls rock off of triple H. Of course, that earns Billy Gunn the rock bottom. But in doing all this, that allowed Triple H to hit the pedigree three and a quarter stars. So it feels like, you know, we're trying to move on. We're trying to build him up as a legitimate badass world title contender. But when the chips are down, hey, let's get DX in here to help him out. But he takes two guys that just lost the match before to come back out. Yeah. Yeah. It's confusing. You had, you had rock and Hunter had, goddamn they had legitimate heat. Yeah. The, the, everything that they did was, it felt real because it was real. And there was a competitiveness to be the best on both guys part. Both, both wanted to outdo the other and that that's the best you can, you know, uh, do they hate each other? No, but they didn't like each other. They didn't hang out with each other. They respected the hell out of each other and they were jealous of each other. 
So they wanted to outdo, and that's the the absolute best chemistry you can have in a match is when you've got two guys out there who are cooperating to have the very best that, that they can have. I thought the match itself, they did a great job. Strap match is hard to hard to do. Um, there's a million and one different ways you could do a strap match, dragging guys around the ring, touch all the posts, all that bullshit. That's what I was brought up on. Okay, whatever. But um, it's hard to work. But I thought the match was good. The finish, when you look at the to- the totality of the show and then you get to the whole thing, it's like, well, wait a minute, what the fuck? And where we're going. But it it was... It's a good story getting where we got to go, uh, but the the match was good. I just to finish kind of all the gaga. I think we could have gotten there without all the gaga. Well, as a result, Triple H has his world title shot. Um, I think uh, sometimes people forget that Rock and Triple H had this monster feud through '98 and '99, and they're both sort of jockeying for position for who's going to be top of the mountain we know that rock wins his first world title at survivor series and now a year later um it's looking like it's going to be triple h's turn let's get to this current situation for the world title it's a first blood match in our main event where the undertaker is going to be challenging steve austin as a reminder steve austin was bleeding as heat ended and then he attacked the undertaker earlier during the pay-per-view and the undertaker's bleeding. So both guys have, have technically already been bleeding before this first blood match starts. Vince McMahon wants to come out to do commentary for this. Meltzer would say it was a really good brawl in particular, the work of Austin. And, uh, they're going to try to work a style of mainly just trying to punch the head and trying to rip at the existing cuts and do what they can, you know, logically to get the other guy to open up. Of course, we know Shane McMahon's going to do a run in x going to do a run in lots of shenanigans involved here, including triple H doing a run in where he's beating on Austin and he's going to rip the tape off of the forehead and there is blood everywhere that brings the rock in Austin and undertaker still brawling. And at one point undertaker even hits Shane McMahon and, uh, Meltzer would say it was a real wild finish with undertaker and Austin, both soaked in blood by this point, brawling to the back. Austin came back, went to shake Vince's head and uh, gave him another stunner as the show went off the air. Really good post-match. He says brought up by a strong finish, uh, three and three quarter stars. What'd you think? I mean, lots of, lots of storyline, lots of Gaga, as you say, there's ref bumps and blood and run-ins. Did it accomplish what you were looking for? You're trying to, you know, set up SummerSlam. Did this do a good job? Yes, it did because it created a lot of confusion and a lot of what, you know, what are they going to do now? So people are asking questions, then that's what we wanted. And it's reason to tune in tomorrow. Now, what the fuck are they going to do? So yes. And I think that it did a good job there. Crazy match. I mean, this is. This is one of those we would call a Pat Patterson special where just everything under the sun happened. And no matter what the finish, which is no finish, which was a lot of just Gaga and everybody getting involved ends up being one of those holy shit moments that I don't think you cared after all was said and done. You just were like, okay, now I got to see what's next. 
And I don't think it pissed anybody off in that regard. And normally I would be one saying, God damn it. What's the finish? What are we doing now? And the fuck this was very well done. My opinion. So the stipulation here is if Vince and Vince added the stipulation on July 5th, that if Austin wins, Vince would never appear on television again. But if Austin loses, he'll never receive a world championship match again. Well, Austin wins. So McMahon is never allowed on TV ever again until tomorrow night. Well, it lasted a few months. I think, well, still. is this one of those, um, I'm tired of being on TV. Let's find a way to get me off. Yes. There's a lot of those we have. We have those faces. <laughs> I mean, I think the most famous story, of course, is where they did the, you know, we told this story early on in our show, but you did the limousine explosion. Goddamn pal. I can't be on TV if I'm dead. True that. So this is another way to just get him off TV. Yes. Why, why does Vince, you know, for everyone sort of knowing and agreeing, I mean, I think it's unanimous. He's, he's the best heel performer in the history of the business. Why is he such a reluctant performer? Is it because he just doesn't want to quote unquote, put himself over. He feels like, you know, he doesn't want to do it at the expense of everyone else. And that, that should be for the talent or does he not enjoy it? No, he does enjoy it. He definitely enjoys it, but he would ra- first of all, he'd rather be in the back producing and feels he's more valuable back there. And he does, he doesn't want to take it away from someone else. That was it for years, but for many years, it also couldn't be denied and he was needed and to be able to use that star power. That was something that really helped catapult us to another level. But for him, it's that, well, God damn, if I'd been in the back, I could have, I could have done this or I could have done that. And it's that wearing all the hats and the producer hat that he enjoys the most. And for him, he felt that that's where he was warranted where he should be not in front of the camera. What say you, um, I say both because I I do think he's a great performer. And I think that when you sparingly that he adds an awful lot to the program because it's, he's a great heel character. He's a natural heel character. It's not like he has to work very hard to be a heel. Um, and, but at the same time to, to have him backstage accessible, uh, that helps and alleviates a lot of other bullshit as well. So it's, it's, I'm 50, 50 on it. I think that if you were to say you have to choose one, I'd keep him in the back. So the next night on raw Vince walks out and, uh, he says he doesn't want the fans to remember him the way he looked at fully loaded. He wanted them to remember him as the handsome, affluent entrepreneur that he is. And as he's preparing to walk away, stone cold hits the ring and Vince offers his hand to Austin. Austin says he has other ideas and he invites Jim Ross into the ring. And Austin says he's not one for singing. So he asked Ross to sing it. Hypothetically, what song do you think JR sang? Trash phrase. No, 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 no. Hey, no, 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 no. Goodbye. Trash phrase. 
how fucking great is it now that you've sort of smartened us all up that Vince loves the na 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 song that he literally works it in every chance he gets. Well, the uh, look, it only took a couple times, and the audience does it just they're they're, they're conditioned perfect. for it now. They're ready. Oh yeah, absolutely. You just do a wave. You just do a wave to the audience now, and they'll start singing. No, 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 no. Yeah. Nah. The best thing about this though, is as Vince gets to his limousine to leave the arena, Howard Finkel approaches him with tears in his eyes and tells Vince, thank you for everything. And gives him a heartfelt, I love you. And Vince got right in Finkel's face and says, do you remember? Get the hell away from me. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. I tell you, I enjoy looking at these shows sort of in a vacuum, you know, a time capsule of sorts to see what was going on, you know, 20 years ago. And while this may not have been the most memorable pay-per-view ever, this was a pretty fun show. I mean, there's some silliness in here, but lots of storyline anything with McMahon, Austin is always a hit. what do you think of fully loaded 99 watching it back after all these time top to bottom? I thought it was a good show. I thought it was a damn entertaining show and yeah, I have my fun picking on different shit, but when you look at it, start to finish it at the very end of it, you're going, all right, that was fun. That was good stuff. It was great stuff. And I liked it. We hope that you guys enjoyed what we did here with fully loaded 99. We've got lots more fun stuff coming your way. We've got an episode on Jim Ross coming up. We've got SummerSlam 04. We've got SummerSlam 99. We've got SummerSlam 89. There's just so much meat on the bone. We appreciate all your support here on Something to Wrestle. And uh, Bruce, when I look at my clock, I feel like it's about that time. It is about that time. So until next week, we'll see you right here on Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Shaka Khan. Is that our new thing? I do Shaka Khan at the end? I'd like trying it again this week. It kind of looked good. I like the, the, the way you do the, the Shaka. Let's, let's try it together. Like okay. the other week on 83 weeks, we were talking about an episode of clash of the champions where sting came out during, before a unification match with him and Ric Flair. And he said the most absurd thing ever. He said, uh, Ric Flair, I'm ready for you. Uh, but you're not ready for me because tonight I'm a great white shark. Aye, 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 aye. <sighs> and it was just so absurd, but somehow when sting did it, it worked. And like no one else could do that. And it worked. And, and when I did that, it tickled Eric and then Eric did it. And I said, Hey man, that was fun. We should do that on the count of three. So let's do that here for Shaka Khan. You in? I'm in. Okay. I'm going to do one, two, three, and then we'll do it. You ready? I'm ready. One, two, three. Shaka, Shaka Khan. Khan. We were way off sync. Let's do one more time. One, two, three. Shaka, Shaka Khan. God damn it. We'll try again next week right here on something to wrestle. Bruce Pritchard. Oh, fuck it. We're going to start all over. All right. All right. Wait, wait, wait. We'll we'll do it that way again. And I'll do, okay. You do your part. I'll do Shaka Khan. Then next week we do it together as Shaka Khan together. Okay. I'm in. Okay. Go. Shaka Khan. That's not what I said. Oh, what'd you say? I'm supposed to say, okay, I'll do it again. Right here next week on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Shaka Khan. That feels better. Let's just keep it that way. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.